Well, 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 here we are. Welcome back, everybody. We're ready to begin our second session. I'm so happy that you all had a great lunch break with lots to reflect upon. Here we are, ready to begin again. Now, where were we? Any questions from last time? Let's just start by taking a few questions and see where everybody is. <laughs> you have to ask yourself, always in the present, what the future will value. Part of the drama and the difficulty of being alive is that the present is always blind to what the future will value. In 200 years looking back, is anybody gonna remember Mark Zuckerberg? Will Facebook have been a thing? Will Instagram have been a thing? Will any of this have mattered? What about the way that cell phones might be wiping out our population by increasing infertility and the likes? Is that a thing? Is that gonna be a thing? In 200 years, we just really don't know. And part of what I was talking about last time in terms of being towards death, imagining yourself on your deathbed in order to look back and make good decisions about meaningful life in the present is also along these lines. If the future is always blind to the present and the present is always blind to the future, how are we to make these good decisions? What's the basis for making good decisions? It's a bigger topic, obviously, than just reading Lacan. But I would say a good bumper sticker to have in mind is that the present is always blind to what the future will value of it. That's a good one to hang on to here. And so the imaginative exercise of putting yourself in future moments looking back is can really only be that, a kind of imaginative exercise. For those of you that have read other key social theorists of the mid to late 20th century, like Michel Foucault, who writes on the history of sexuality, including the history of psychoanalysis. This is somebody who also understood a lot about how madness was operationalized in the modern tradition to create a whole trove, a whole army of people called psychologists that could then diagnose and institutionalize, criminalize, anthropologize, ill people. So I think that this is a good opportunity for us to reflect broadly, not just thinking the big thoughts, but remembering that psychology is a tradition. It's a discipline like any other. Like any other. Some people might even say that English is a more healing art than psychology. English, the discipline, not the language. I'm really eager for us to get to graph one on 681. So I'm looking here and I wanna offer you a summary of what we were talking about this morning on page 679. When you lose traction in this text, return to page 679 for a great summary of what's been happening up to this point. It begins with a very difficult opening phrase, being of non-being. In the French, you're on page 802. In the English, you're on page 679. Being of non-being, that is how I comes onto the scene as a subject who is conjugated with the double aporia of a veritable subsistence that is abolished by his knowledge. 
and by a discourse in which it is death that sustains existence. The general rule here is that the enunciating subject must be placed under erasure for the grammatical subject to take flight. That's what he's talking about here. The double aporia. An aporia is like an impasse. It's like a roadblock. A veritable subsistence that is abolished by his knowledge. The enunciating subject, the embodied parts of self are typically abolished when we enter language as a grammatical subject. A discourse in which it is death that sustains existence. The death of the human form that sustains its existence in language as a grammatical subject. This is a great summary of what he's up to here, at least up to this point. <clears throat> We're almost ready to talk about graph one. The key move here occurs on page 681 in the line just above graph one. We've talked a little bit about the role of language in human subjectivity and how language produces a kind of split subjectivity where we're always torn between the versions of ourselves that are impulsive, that are affective, that feel the intensifications of feeling that come from having a body. And the version of us that is abstracted in language, operating at the level of Instagram and the US Postal Service, including Zoom itself. And that this doesn't create a bifurcated being, although it is split, it creates a tripart being. One that has not just two slightly oppositional structures, but a line or a bar that allows them to remain in a differential relationship. For Lacan, the most important part is the bar, the cut, the gap itself that language introduces, allowing these two parts of self to open up and remain in a differential relation. The question he then wants to ask is, on 681, at the very top of 805 in the French, where is desire situated in relation to a subject defined on the basis of his articulation by the signifier? Where is desire in the midst of all this? After all, the second part of this essay is the dialectic of desire. Can somebody please get us to desire? We're a third of the way through this section of the course and we're just now arriving at desire. And yet here I go, I'm gonna back away from desire and talk about two other terms instead. Terms that I think are pretty important to understanding how desire works. The first is need. Need is not desire. And the second will be demand. Demand is not desire either. They're both incredibly important to understanding what's happening on page 681 with graph number one. <clears throat> I wanna tell you some stories. I can't vouch for these stories. And really I can only vouch once. I raised a kid. She's still around, she's still a kid, but I got her through this phase. And I don't know if this holds up for you in your experience, but it certainly held true for Lacan. 
Remember that body that we're born into in the first of three pillars of human ontology I spoke about? You have to have a body and that body has to receive care from others. This body is a body of pure need. When the human being, the human form emerges, it is a subject of pure need. This is represented in graph number one as the delta sign in the bottom right. And when this being cries out, if this being is lucky, here's the crying out. Where? If I did it as loud as I would want to, my daughter would come in. She's in the other room right now watching Octonauts, like eight hours of Octonauts. She's like in heaven out there. She's eating goldfish and watching Octonauts. There's not a single wah that's going to come out of that living room. So I'll keep it quiet and just say, wah. Here it is, a subject of pure need. This is the field of need down here. And when I say pure need, I mean that in the beginning, to the extent that we can even talk about this, human beings are born as biological organisms strictly. We are the lizards on the rock. We are animals to begin with. Effectively, if you wanna know the types of animals we are, we're basically worms. There's an indoor and an outdoor and all of this other stuff is just there to help us keep things flowing through. The structure of the organism is effectively that of a worm. So also with us. This is the worm, a bioanimalistic being of pure need. They have material needs and they cry out. If they're lucky, whether your parent was good enough or not, food was brought to them. And I really wanna emphasize this. I don't wanna dip into Winnie Cotter and this other stuff. A good enough parent in this model, a good enough primary caregiver in this model, doesn't have to be a mommy or a daddy or an auntie or an uncle, anything. It's just somebody that brings you food when you're hungry, blankets when you're cold and the like. The good enough model that Lacan is working with here at the level of a primary caregiver is just one that allows the human being to sustain its biological life, basically keeping that shit alive. So what happens is the subject of pure need cries out and the adult being the adult that they are ideally hears it in the other room. We just call it the PC or the primary caregiver. The primary caregiver hears the cry and shows up, usually with some ideas in mind about what's going to happen next. I remember when my kiddo was born or about to be born, I called my brother. He had had several kids. I said, man, what the hell am I supposed to do? When this thing cries, I'm not gonna know what it means. I won't have any idea what it means. It can't just tell me what it wants. He said, bro, look, there are only like four things you can do. He's like, basically like, if it cries, you can bring it food. If it's still crying after you try and feed it, try changing its diaper. If it's still crying after you change its diaper, maybe it's tired trying to get to sleep. I said, well, what's the fourth one? He's like, then you just call the doctor. Don't worry, it's fine. Just call the doctor, they'll know what to do. But I figured, okay, I had this list. I had the four list on a little note card so I could never forget, right? The things to do in the order that they do. A child cries and the parent interprets that cry. I wanna be very clear about this. 
In this model of child development, the meaning of the child's cry is determined by the primary caregiver. The primary caregiver assigns meaning to the child's cry. So much so that the child even learns to cry in certain ways to produce certain effects. The same way that you can meet a parent, some of these seasoned ass parents, and you hear their kid crying. And if you don't have kids, you're like, shouldn't you go check on that? And you're like, and that parent's like, no, that's not a real cry. That's okay. He'll be fine. That's not a real one. And then all of a sudden, the cry sounds exactly the same. And the parent's like, oh, shit, that's a real cry. I'll be back. They can perceive some difference that you can't. And I would just suggest that it's the parent's perception, the primary caregiver's perception that trickles down to the subject of pure need. I want to emphasize this again. The meaning of the cry is determined by the primary caregiver's response. The subject of pure need, this bio-animalistic being, doesn't know that they're, quote, hungry. Something is just off with them organismically. Something feels off. They don't know that they need a new diaper. They just know they're uncomfortable. And so they cry and hope for the best, if they hope at all. This is something really important because the transition from the outburst that is cry coming from a position of need crosses the threshold of language. You'll recall this is the exact same model we've been working with. There's a horizontal line and a retroactive line. Remember all these? It's the precise and foremost structure of human speech as well. These models are all the same. There's a diachronic line that unfolds in time and then a retrospective, nachtraglich line for those of you that read German that operates retrospectively after the fact. Same model that we were messing with here at the field of repression and the formation of the unconscious, same model that we're working with here at the bottom of 681. What happens is something like this. And here I'm gonna add some terms to help us keep things clear. Here's my daughter crying out. Wow, 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 wow. A here means big other. For our purposes, these are all the words in the dictionary. This is the four possibilities listed on the note card that my brother provided me. These are all the things that I could do in that moment. This is what Lacan refers to in this essay as a treasure trove of signifiers. These are all the possible responses that a primary caregiver could have to a crying infant. Now I joke and say that I only had four, but let's get real. Anybody who's been through this with a niece, a nephew, a daughter, a son, whatever, man, knows that there are about a million responses you could possibly have. And you're going to mess up each and every one of them, no matter which you choose. But this is the inventory. Big A here equals the inventory or the treasure trove of responses available. This is what Lacan means by the big other. 
The big other is not a being. This is not the man, even though it kind of works as the man, this kind of nebulous figure. The better word for this is simply society. This is every word in the dictionary. This is all the laws that make up society. These are the norms, these are the mores. The technical term for this, which he will carry throughout his career, and you will read about in other areas of his work, is the symbolic. This is the field of the symbolic. And what that means is that it's the field of law, language, signifier. It is a place more than an entity. And it purports to be complete. That's why there's no bar through it. This is the collection of every word in the English language. If you want an example of this, this is what every dictionary purports to be. Every dictionary purports to give you the treasure trove of every single possible word, including conjugations in a given language. That's what this is. It's every option that is available to me as a parent when my kid cries out. All the signifiers. Are you clear on that so far? Thumbs up if you're clear. If you're not, I can keep Quick going. question. Um, just does that add, does that include things not in the established kind of order of language? Yeah. Like words, for instance. You better believe it. Yeah. But the challenge, one of the challenges here is that as we get further up the graph of desire, there are certain signifiers that point to things that are missing from this treasure trove. And this is one of the really slippery logical points that you have to wrap your head around if you're going to start making use of this material. Is that the way the symbolic works, the way the big other works, is that it purports to be a collection of everything. It's a totalizing set. It purports to be every word in the dictionary. But here's the thing, here's the issue with that. Now just bear with me on this. The issue with that is that if you're going camping and your partner says, how are we doing on the packing? And you say, I've packed everything. Everything is packed, everything is in place. That means that nothing has been left behind. If everything is included, it's fair to say that nothing has been left out, right? The symbolic has this logic. It is again, a mathematical set theoretical logic. This is the set that purports to include everything. But here's the dilemma. Here's the reason why it's always incomplete. Because there's always this something that is nothing that is left out. What is this outer limit? This place that can't be included, but that needs to be excluded, in fact, to guarantee the totalizing count known as the symbolic, the big A other. If everything is packed for the camping trip, nothing has been left behind. Shouldn't you turn around and go get it? What is the function? Forget about the existence because technically speaking, it exists outside. 
What is the function of this something that is nothing relative to the totalizing category known as the symbolic? I'm gonna say that again. What is the function of this something that is nothing to this totalizing count known as the symbolic? How does it operate? Where is it? Is it truly outside or does it just wander aimlessly, errantly perhaps, through the symbolic uncounted, unrepresented? This is a little abstract, so we're gonna get pretty precise here in a minute. So far, what I want you to know is that this A here, which is very much the hinge point for the entire graph of desire, is a totalizing or supposedly totalizing account of all the laws, all the signifiers, all the rules, all the words. Here represented by me and my note card with the four things I could possibly do when my kid cries. So the cry of the child comes up and I meet it. The primary caregiver meets the cry here. I hear the cry and I choose from my four options. My brother told me there were only four. That's a totalizing count of all the responses I could have to a crying baby. I was so relieved that there were only four. I was like, thank God, four things. Okay, here I am. I arrive. I get my note card out. There's a crying baby. And I'm like, which one do I choose? This arrow represents the choice. This is me choosing one meaning of the child's cry from the entire inventory of available options. That's how we read this second circle. This is meaning that little s is the meaning or the signified according to the big other, as derived from the big other. And this transition where the child cries out in a state of pure need, and I then, then use language effectively to bring meaning to that cry, transforms the cry from an expression of need to a demand. And in the French, this really means more like a request. The parent or the primary caregiver hears the child's cry as a request and then shows up with whatever it is they think, and it's a guess, the child is requesting. Mine was always food. So when my kid would cry, I'd always like grab a bottle, do something, mix some formula. I was always like ready to go. Even when she was teeny tiny, like less than six pounds, I had like a little, like a little eyedropper. I was like ready. I had like an eyedropper in a holster. I was like ready for this shit. Eyedroppers all over the place. I like boop, 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 like feeding a little baby bird. I was so ready. But that was how I interpreted it. I always started with food. Try to feed the thing first. That was my move. That was my transformation of the expression of pure need into a biolinguistic request. That's what the demand is. The demand is need articulated in language. Need assigned meaning. Demand is need articulated in language. 
That's what demand is. <clears throat> Over time, what this little infant learns is that the best, fastest, easiest way to have its needs met is to articulate them as demands, eventually choosing to use the words of the primary caregiver, a language that is not their own. And that's what happens with name your disciplinary practice, potty training, holding a fork, all of the civilizing techniques that we introduce into children's lives are designed to pull them out partially from subjectivity to pure need and mediate their bioanimalistic existence through society, through language. You can hear this very clearly in the grocery store when the kid really wants something and they're crying about it. They may be even having a tantrum. One of the things that you'll hear primary caregivers saying again and again to crying kids is, I can't understand you when you're crying like that. Slow down, take a breath, tell me what it is, tell me what happened. Use your words is another one. Use your words is what the primary caregiver tells to these kids. Some of you are smiling because you know this is how this shit unfolds more often than not. This introduction to language, a language that is not their own, yet nevertheless will be eventually referred to as their mother tongue. Just remember, first and foremost, it was usually the tongue of the mother that instilled it. Not that mommy has to be a genetically anatomically female. All of these positions for Lacan are functions. Anybody can step in and play the maternal figure. The paternal figure doesn't have to be a biologically male individual. It's a function. Jesus can play that role, but so can St. Mary. Remember, these are all functions. The primary caregiver here is also a functionary. It's an office that can be occupied by anyone like the presidency. Hmm, interesting analog. In this case, Demand is what the child eventually learns. They still have need, but they realize that if they use the parent's language, the primary caregiver's tongue, they can get those needs met faster, easier, with less resistance. And you'll see kids trying it. You'll see them struggling. They're crying, they're sobbing because some ha something happened to them. Somebody was fighting with them. And you ask them, please calm down, take a breath, and tell me what it is that happened. And they really struggle so hard to get their words together. They're like, hi, well, it's just he, 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 and then, see, some of you laugh because you know, and it's so tough because you want to crack up in these moments. You're like, this little being that I love is doing the weirdest shit I've ever seen a human do. I was, and he, and it was, and he, and he hit me. You know, and the bigger brother's like, that's not what happened. Like, and the little kid's like, oh, crying even more, you know, like just back into it. And the big brother's like, yeah, that's right, fool. I have language in a way that you do not. I can speak clearly and deny it all. And you can't stop crying. So the, the child really struggles being introduced into language. And it's a big ask. Because what you effectively are asking the child to do is to give up on the rather impulsive activities that define them as infants. 
Potty training works the same way. When a baby needs to piss or shit, it just does it, whether you have a diaper on them or not. And everybody who's ever tried this before knows that experience. As soon as you take that diaper off, the cold air comes blowing in and every baby seems to realize they now need to urinate twice as much as they did before they caused the diaper needing to be changed. And if it's a little boy with a little penis and it's just spraying around, it's just nuts. It's just, no, it's not nuts, right? It's just the opposite. It's just ridiculous. But this happens. Prior to language, prior to potty training, kids pooped and peed whenever they felt like it. But with potty training, what the child has to learn is there are certain times and places where you are allowed to poop and pee. And then you get like really inventive kids. Like I had a nephew that decided that potted plants were basically like toilets. And so you'd see him like over in the corner, like, oh, he really likes plants. Nah, fool, he's in there pooping. He just straight up pooped in your house plant. And he's like, we're cool, right? I'm done, right? I did my job, right? He don't want to miss the action. So he just goes and poops in a house plant. It took a minute for them to sort out. A house plant is not a toilet. And that's a symbolic exercise. You bring the child into the symbolic by teaching them all these appropriate ways to express their needs, to get their needs met. And we reward them. The child that poops in the toilet meets with applauding family members. Like you're clapping, you reach in the toilet and pick up the poop and go around and show everybody you're so proud of this kid. You give them rewards, there are candies for every poop. You think I kid, I'm not. When I told you that that seven minutes was indeed a gift of shit, I mean to remind you that all gifts descend from the original gift, which was the gift of shit that the child gave to the potty training parent. Remember this about gifts. The best gifts are as useless as a pile of shit. It's the horrible work of art that your child generates that you will hang on to for the rest of your life. It's that terrible sweater that your grandma knitted you once that never fit, was absolutely atrocious, but blew your mind at the amount of love you felt from her. Think about this. The gifts that societies we used to give to each other were spears that were never meant to be thrown, vases that were never meant to be filled. The greatest gift is a totally useless gift, which is how we get expressions like it's the thought that counts. The first gift always tells you the truth of what gifts are like. They're always shit. It's always the gift of shit. And that is technical. And when that goes bad, this is one of the ways that you can get obsessional neurosis. It's one of the great sources, according to Lacan. Potty training is a great opportunity for the seeds of obsessional neurosis to be sown. What we are after here is language, the role of language in this. The function is the same, and that function is simple. Let me cut to the chase. Prohibition. When you tell the child they can only poop or pee at this place and at this time, that is effectively telling them no, N-O. That is a prohibition. 
It's a prohibition, you might say, against pooping and peeing whenever and wherever they want. And that's partly how things go south, right? Is the child has an accident and the primary caregiver loses their shit, so to speak. And that can create issues. But if you keep it 300, cool, calm, collected, you get the kid to the bathroom, you can kind of work things out. But accidents are going to happen. Now, this is not just about like civilizing these little worms that are children. This is about introducing the first cut into a human being's life, which is effectively a prohibition. Now, it doesn't matter whether you are prohibiting pissing or shitting whenever and wherever, or whether you're prohibiting baby talk. My kid does this sometimes too. She has a kind of regressive voice that she gets into. And I catch myself telling her, use your real voice, honey. Use your real voice. And so she's like, okay. And then she starts speaking normally again. Anytime you get like regressive speech in patients, you, and you can see this too around, people have done studies around um, humans interacting with pets especially with vets, with vets around, the way that we throw our voices and talk very highly when Fluffy's right here and do all this kind of like regressive behavior and talk through the mute animal to address the vet. Mm, I'm having trouble with my anus these days. I get a bloody anus sometimes, you say through your cat to the vet. And the vet's like, oh, really you do? And then the owner's like, yes. It's a totally bizarre form of human interaction, but it's mediated through a creature that can't speak. The difference is that if you're lucky, the child is able through a series of mirror neurons, but also through an innate linguistic ability to start appropriating that language and learning it. And pretty soon they're using your words to express their needs as demands, as requests. Daddy, may I please have? We're working a lot on that these days. Not just I want, but may I please have? These calm, polite ways of doing it. Further regimenting the way that needs get met through demand. The main thing to take away from this is that the experience that the child undergoes is one of prohibition. The word for that technically in Lacanian terms is castration. I don't think we need that word. I think that word is helpful because it appears, especially in the upper right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. But what he means there is prohibition. And it's fundamentally prohibition against one thing. It is prohibition against living in a world without prohibitions. This is another one of those weird, odd, logical moves that Lacan makes that will distinguish his work from other thinkers. He can rise to this level and then mobilize it for clinical practice. You think that the prohibition is against baby talk, is against crying when instead you could use words. That's not it. The first and foremost prohibition, the constitutive prohibition that produces the split subject is a prohibition against remaining in a world without prohibition. The no of the parent or the primary caregiver. 
is fundamentally a prohibition against living a life in which you've never heard no before any longer. That world ends. If you accept language, you have to give up on pre-linguistic bio-animalistic life. Not entirely, but you have to render it alongside your sociolinguistic reality. And now you are a split subject. It sounds like a lot. It sounds like a big ask. Another word for this that you may see in some of the literature is alienation. Alienation because you are asked to inhabit a world of meaning that is not of your own creation. And not even asked, you are oftentimes forced into this world, sometimes traumatically so. That process is known as castration or alienation. I think we do better to just call it prohibition. And it's not simply a prohibition against any particular behavior. It's a prohibition against any more life in a world without prohibition. Once the no has been uttered, there's no going back if you accept it. According to Lacan, this is one of the ways that you get psychosis. Psychosis is a radical foreclosure and utter rejection of this prohibition an utter rejection of the invitation to the symbolic, to language, that the primary caregiver issues to the child. <clears throat> he says this is one of the object causes of psychosis. Because what's lost to the psychotic is also what's gained to the neurotic by accepting their place in the symbolic. And that is, as you just heard from me, a place. Say what you will about society with all of its laws and its rules and the fact that when you came home from the hospital, your room was already painted blue or pink or whatever. It serves this very important role of containing the child, structuring the child, providing them with a holding device in which they can begin to cultivate an identity, even if an identity built out of opposition to the pink room. It's still an opposition on terms established by the big other, where pink, at least from the 19 teens forward in America, has signaled somehow um, femininity. Didn't used to, but it does now. So the idea here is that this prohibition comes at a big cost. Because now you can't just do whatever the fuck you want whenever the fuck you want to. Which is also why I curse in this class. Because as you'll see, this fundamentally becomes a prohibition against jouissance. But for now, what we know is that this prohibition also brings with it a great reward. Because it allows the child to fit into a social order in which they have a place in which they can feel contained enough to be a kid, to imagine. This is partly why stability and consistency and regularity, I refer to it as keeping 300, as you heard me say, cool, calm, and collected from the Latinate tradition, is so important to kids. Because what it shows them is that the order into which you are trying to fit them 
is a sane one, a reasonable one. You don't just tell the kid, no, they can't do that. You also talk to them about why they can't do that. You rationalize the social order. You rationalize the symbolic in a way that the kid can understand so that eventually you're no longer needed to remind them what the rules are. When the symbolic is introjected, brought inside so that it's now part of the psychic structure of the child, you have the lower left-hand quadrant of the graph of desire. This is the ego ideal. Now, some of you might've heard this as the superego. The fine tuning technicalities in Lacanian algebra are way beyond that. The superego is not the ego ideal, is not the ideal ego. These are radical distinctions. The ego ideal is the law, the order, the normative codes, the gendered dynamics that the child learns to internalize. And they internalize it by eventually having the law separated from the lawgiver. Initially, you have to be there to pick the child up and pull them away from the hot stove and explain to them why that's important. Eventually, you don't need to be there and they'll still steer clear of the stove. That's what we're getting at here. So the terms we now have under our belts are these. A subject of pure need issues a cry. An adult shows up with all the possible responses and then chooses one of those responses, thereby educating the child about how they can get their needs met using a language that is not their own. The effect of this is a split subjectivity where you have a being that is one part bioanimalistic need. This is the enunciating subject. And another part that is sociolinguistically determined. This is the grammatical subject. So what we've basically done is taken the two primitive categories that we were working with this morning and plugged them in to this model in a developmental narrative that gives us several of the key terms and now is setting us up for another, in this case, the ego ideal. It's a trick doing this without the whiteboard, as you know, and I appreciate you bearing with me. Do let me know if you want me to hold up any of these crappy little drawings. I'm happy to do it. And let's pause for a second there and see if we have any questions that we can answer. Kind of just a random thought that came up following the um, the symbolic or the, you know, the use of language and prohibition as like an initiation into the social order that they need to come into. So this is so rites of passage are functions of the symbolic in the same way, the new social order that people yes, are being yes. initiated into. Gotcha. Yes. And I think that's a great way to think about this too, Jared, as a kind, these kind of rites of passage, because these things oftentimes come with literal cutting. There are oftentimes cuts that are physically introduced. There are experiences, getting your ears pierced, for instance. In some cultures, that means that you're properly on the path to becoming a little girl. Think about that. That is an opening 
that is introduced into a previously closed circuit. That does not mean, and I wanna be really clear about this, that doesn't mean that prior to having your ears pierced, there was no hole in your ear. That's not the conclusion to draw from this, even though factually you know that to be the case. The conclusion is longing for an unpierced ear is an effect of having pierced ears. It's only because your ears have been cut and opened that you can now long for something that is gone. And in this case, the closed, unpierced ear can only be accessed as a lost object, as something lost, a lost wholeness. When you just had unpierced ears, you didn't think about that shit. You just had ears. And if you notice this distinction at all, it was nothing, especially if you think about the very young age in which some cultures pierce the little girl's ears. Think about that. Before that occurred, the ear was nothing to the child. It was not even a tangible thing. It was maybe something like masturbatory, kind of erogenous that the kid could like play with. But there was no feeling of this as whether this was a whole earlobe or not. It's in the wake of the piercing that the child can then learn to long for, dream about a world where ears aren't pierced and including noticing other girls without earrings, which never would have been noticed before. So it's kind of a weird logic and it kind of asks you to have a certain mindset with this, even though you know that before your ears were pierced, they were unpierced. The point though is what does the unpierced ear and that experience appear as in the wake of having your ears pierced? It appears as something that's been lost, something that's gone, something you can't get back. As anybody who has pulled an earring out of their ear and let that shit try and go back knows, the hole may close, but there's still a little node or a little knob in there. Yeah. That cut remains, in this case, at the level of the scar. He said, because you said, maybe we're going there, that idea of like the lost object, how does that function in relation to like the lost object of like the parental other? Yeah, I wouldn't put the parental other as a lost object here yet. I think the thing that we have now that we know is gone, that we know is lost, is a world without prohibition. That's what we have here. So the cut that introduces the child into language affords the child now with an opportunity to long for something that it never previously experienced as lost, but it also never experienced as possessing either. Like a lizard on a rock, pre-linguistic bio-animality doesn't know anything. Knowledge is an effect of signification. So also is consciousness, certainly self-consciousness. What else is being by yourself but a symbolic enterprise? <clears throat> Any more questions before we take this next step towards desire? I told you that's what we're up to. And then I backed up into need and demand. All right, I wanna take a first pass at desire. And I wanna do so as I've been doing here for you today, and yet in ways that I don't think you fully understand why, mathematically. 
The first definition of desire I want to provide you with is a mathematical definition. Desire equals demand minus need. And you can just straight up write it as an equation. It's a great shorthand to have here. Whether it's sufficient to get us to the depths we want, I don't know. Desire equals demand minus need. Let's stick with our example. A child cries out. The parent guesses and the primary caregiver shows up with a blanket. What we know about material needs is that once they are satisfied, they go away. When need is interpreted and a blanket is, bought, is brought, need becomes demand. Demand again is need articulated in language. The blanket is brought and the need goes away. That's why it's demand minus need. The question of desire is what after need disappears? after material needs are met, is left to be desired. What is left of demand after need has been met? Desire is what is left of demand after need has been met. So it turns out the need was for warmth. You bring the blanket and the need goes away but there's something about the demand that lingers. There's something more to be desired. And I've thought a lot about this and I just wanna be as clear as I can because I don't believe in obfuscation of any sort. When a primary caregiver shows up with a blanket, they're not just trying to satisfy material need. That's not just what they're communicating to the child. What they're also saying is, I'm here, I've got you. You can count on me. When you cry, I will respond. I will bring you blanket. In those moments, the child does not just feel warmth from the blanket that the primary caregiver has brought. They feel love, they feel care. And in fact, this is part of what the primary caregiver says to the child. This is what it means for you to be loved. So if every time the child cries, you bring it food, you could see how that might go south, right? You see how this could work? You see how an eating disorder could emerge from something like this? It wouldn't take too many moves to get you into an eating disorder from a situation like that. Because that was every time the child cried, the primary caregiver showed up with food and then left the child feeling like, this is what it means for others to love me. I feel loved and cared for when I am eating. You see, this kind of stuff. Or think about it the alternative way. If every time the child cried, you only showed up with a blanket, that might tell the child that eating is not a way to love themselves. 
And you might have a different kind of eating disorder at the other end of that one with a few more turns of the screw. So these can have, I believe, long lasting implications. And I believe that only because of the literatures that I've read. Again, keep that distinction in mind. Do with it what you will. Remember, I just play a doctor on TV. That's all. <clears throat> For our purposes, the most important thing to note is that needs can be met. They are satiable. The demand for love cannot. The demand for love is insatiable. Needs can be met. The demand for love cannot. It's one of the great wagers of this argument. <clears throat> Now you may feel like you've been loved too much, but smothering ain't the same as love. Having a helicopter parent or a helicopter partner, that's not the same as love. Having somebody rummaging through your phone all the time, wondering where you've been, that's not love. Surveillance is not love. The state doesn't love you. Nobody on this call, I would venture, has ever been loved too much. You might feel annoyed because your mom keeps fucking texting you all day long about dumb shit, right? You get all upset about that. You're like, stop loving me. That's not what you say, but it's kind of like, stop loving me the way that you love me. I don't like the way you love me. You're so weird. Stop it. Stop it. Point though is that when love occurs at the level of care of a simple gift, remember now and notice what's happening. The gift of shit is now becoming the gift of life. This is the other approach to the logic of the gift. It's the blanket that keeps you from shivering to death, but that also gives you your first taste of love, your first taste of care, your first taste of being held. This is the seedbed of desire. Desire is what's left of demand after need has been met. And what's left of demand after need has been met is a demand for love. And so I want to plant this seed with you. The demand for love is the origin of desire. But what happens along the way is that the demand for love gets twisted by desire into a desire for recognition a desire for approval, a desire for validation. And we don't know quite yet how that happens, but this is the structure of desire. Desire does something to the demand for love. I don't wanna use the word pervert because that's a technical term, but desire twists the demand for love into a desire for recognition. That's the next move in understanding what's happening here with the graph of desire. As always though, I just wanna pause for a minute and field some questions, comments, anything that's on your mind. Absolutely, go ahead. Could I summarize, could I say that, I mean, would it be appropriate to phrase that in the sort of future looking retroactively, like desire being the demand for love having been twisted into? Yes, yes, 
I think that's a brilliant way to do this. It's a great way to start thinking. And it does start to give us an answer to one of the questions that graph two raises on page 684. And the model I just showed you, the split subject is at the end of the retroactive arrow. But in graph two, you can see the split subject has slid over and now is taking the place of the subject of pure need. And now you have the ego ideal where the split subject used to be. And there's a very weird explanation for this, but one that has everything to do with the future anterior tense. I was this only to become that. Where it was, I must become. Where the subject of pure need was, a split subject must become. And where the split subject was, the ego ideal will become.